Warning, this episode includes topics of extreme violence, extreme sexual assault, and mental illness that some people might be uncomfortable with. Listener discretion is advised, especially for young children. We don't have anything from when they were in the house in the early stages. We don't have any interviews from there. We don't know what happened until way after. Now, obviously, if, if what we're getting is from what Garden's book says, we know a lot of that was made up. For all we know, maybe he made up the first two scenarios to make it look scarier, to make it look more real because someone other than just the schizophrenic brother was seeing it. That's, that, that could be what happened. If it's off of interviews, that could be way after they've decided they want to get the money and fame to make up stories. We can't trust anything because we know the facts have been tampered with. iconic horror movies in cinematic history are actually based on a true story and in this podcast me Yeshu Pasani, a paranormal believer and me Arvagunathan a skeptic dive deep into the true stories these movies are based on and argue whether there really was a supernatural presence or not and in this season we're setting out to answer the question of whether humans consciously open themselves up to the paranormal or if all they're feeling is paranoia join us on this journey as we discover what's behind the story Hello and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Story. I'm your host, Yashri Upasani, a paranormal believer who is going to spend this episode explaining why demons are definitely real. And I'm your other host, Arvind Raghunathan, the skeptic who's going to disprove everything Yashri said because science has proven that the paranormal doesn't exist. Now, if you come back for another fabulous season three episode, then thank you. And if you have no idea what's happening, then hello, this is the podcast where we talk about the true stories that inspire famous horror movies. For today's episode, we are going to be covering the true story behind the movie, The Haunting in Connecticut. The movie was released on March 27, 2009, and made $77 million in the box office. It starred Kylie Gallner, Virginia Madsen, and more, and it follows the story of a family who moves into a house in Connecticut in order to be closer to the hospital that is treating their son. However, there are unknown forces that work inside the home, dark forces, and the family finds themselves having to survive their worst nightmare. And we're keeping the whole movie-slash-book theme going since this true story was transcribed into a non-fiction novel by Ray Garden, which is just very interesting. I'd also like to remind you of the questions we're asking this season, which is whether we open ourselves up to the possibility of being haunted or if it's all just paranoia. Don't forget to follow us at Behind the Story on Instagram and Twitter with a period between the I and N for Instagram and an underscore between the I and N for Twitter. And leave us a message on our Anchor.fm website with anything you would like us to know. And before we continue with the episode, we have one last very important thing to say. Every season, we donate our funds to a charity that we really believe in and want to share with you guys in hopes that you donate along with us. This season, we decided to donate to Planned Parenthood in order to protect a woman's right to contraception, abortions, and her own body. On June 24th, Roe v. Wade was overturned, an American law that protected a woman's right to an abortion, and now millions of women across the country are living in uncertainty and helplessness. We will continue to donate to Planned Parenthood as well as our local abortion funds. And in the bio of this episode, we will add a link to a website where you can find your own abortion fund to donate to. And this is done by state. And to all of our listeners who don't live in America, you can still donate to these organizations because we women are always stronger together. And now let's get on with the episode. Now, our story starts with the Snedeker family. And it's important to establish who was in the Snedeker family. So they consisted of parents, Alan, Carmen, 
and their kids, Jennifer, Allen Jr., Bradley, and Philip. So, in 1986, they were living in upstate New York and were just a normal middle-class family. However, things took a turn for the worst when Philip developed a lump on his neck and his mom took him to the doctor and the doctor ordered a biopsy to see whether it was cancer or something else on that severity level. The biopsy revealed that he had Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer, and he had only six months left to live. Now, Philip was being treated at a hospital in Connecticut, which meant that Philip and his mother were driving hours on end just to get Philip his treatment. This prompted the family to find a place to rent in Connecticut. Carmen eventually found a house in Hartford County, a county that is now considered a historic neighborhood, and the house was a white duplex house with three stories, including a basement. Interestingly, when Carmen looked at the house for the first time, the basement was closed off, which feels like an immediate red flag, but she didn't really dwell on that too much, and the Seneca family bought the house anyways. When the family moved into the house, the first thing they did was try to renovate the basement in hopes that their two oldest sons, Philip and Bradley, could live there. Now, like I said earlier, the basement was closed off. So after kind of breaking down the walls and stuff, Alan was able to see why the basement had been closed off in the first place. Downstairs was a mortuary or a funeral home, and there were multiple rooms, levers and pulleys that were from the ceiling that were used to lift corpses. And one of the rooms still had dried blood on the floor, which is just disgusting. Now, after some investigating, the house was revealed to have been a formal, a former funeral home, which explains the cheap deal that they got for it. The Seneca family didn't have the money to move from the house, so they kept living in the former funeral home and kept on renovating the basement. Eventually, the basement was totally finished, and Philip and Bradley moved into the lower level. Now, before I continue with the story, I want to take us back to something we learned in our last season in our Veronica and Estefania episode. One of the things we talked about was something called the four degrees of possession. And I'm bringing them back again because we will see these four signs, especially with Philip, as I continue this story. But let's do a quick recap on what they are. So Father Gabriel Amorth, a former chief exorcist of Rome who passed away on September 16th, 2018, wrote a book called An Exorcist Tells His Tale, and he explained these four degrees of possession. One is infestation. So that's when like the furniture moves and stuff is misplaced and sounds are heard and doors move, all that kind of stuff. The second thing that happens is oppression. So this is when the physical attacks come into play. So a lack of sleep and nightmares, depression, anxiety, and relationship troubles. The third thing that happens is obsession. So when the afflicted person or the main targeted person has a hard time functioning. So they're plagued by thoughts of demons and death, and it's just very unlike themselves. And finally, the fourth and final stage is possession. Now, possession is not when a demon or demons enter a person's body, taking over their soul. But instead, possession is when a person is so physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually broken that they are not able to control themselves anymore. So just keep these four things in mind as we continue. So all of these hauntings kind of start right away. So one day when Carmen was mopping the floor, the water bucket that she had, like the water in the bucket, just turned blood red, possibly turning into blood itself. And she showed it to one of the renovators downstairs who was working on the basement, who after viewing the bloody bucket, like literally just ran out of the house. Now, Philip was mostly the target of all the paranormal activity, and he would see things, shadows, a boy wearing a Superman costume running around his room, and both Philip and Bradley even reported seeing three figures in trench coats standing in their room. One night, both the boys witnessed one of these black figures standing near a toy robot in their room, and eventually, the robot flew across the room, landing on the wall and breaking. The boys screamed for their dad, and when Alan came down, he saw the broken toy across the room and immediately knew that something was wrong. Philip claimed that he saw a figure with white hair, white eyes, and was always wearing a pinstripe tuxedo. 
This figure would watch him sleep every night. Another figure he saw was just a floating head with a long scar down its face. Seeing all of these apparitions was really getting to Philip and Bradley, so they started keeping the lights on at night so these figures wouldn't come out. But in one of the worst parenting moves of all time, Alan removed the light bulbs from the basement because of the high electricity cost that the light, keeping the lights on caused him, which is just insane. Like, why? <laughs> and then this is where everything gets even crazier because even though the light bulbs were removed, the light fixtures themselves would still flicker and then fade into a dull glow. So Philip, because he was at the front of all of this activity, was going through major mood swings. He became angry and depressed and even started writing dark poetry, sent up necrophilic. They thought that this was a side effect to his chemotherapy, but when Carmen asked Philip's doctors about this, the doctor said that mood swings were not one of the side effects. Now, this is something that we can see when I talked about stage two, which was oppression, and also stage three, obsession, right? Because oppression is this, like, increased depression, the mood swings, and then obsession comes in when it's about the whole ne necrophilic poetry and, you know, being plagued by thoughts of death, all that kind of stuff. Things really started to escalate after this as Philip started fighting with his siblings. He even broke into his neighbor's house once in hopes to steal their gun to shoot his fathers with. Also, during an intense episode, Philip attacked his cousin Tammy and tried to rape her. Alan and Carmen took Philip for a psych evaluation where it was revealed that Philip had molested his female cousins before, and Philip was later diagnosed as schizophrenic. Philip stayed in a mental institution for 45 days where he started getting better, but when he started to take visits back home, his symptoms would get worse again. When Carmen left her son after a visit at the institution, Philip shouted, quote, now they're going to come after you, end quote. And Philip was right, as Carmen began experiencing strange phenomena herself. She would realize that things would start to disappear or end up in another place from where she left them. Food would start going bad quicker. Literally, you would take a bite out of an apple and the next bite you would take, the apple would already have gone bad and be mushy and brown. And the whole family started to see apparitions. So this is kind of a thing back to the first stage, which is infestation, right? Things are moving around, unexplained phenomena is happening. The whole family also began to feel the temperature get colder and they would smell rotting meat throughout the house and they would all, like I said earlier, see apparitions and these shadows. So Carmen claimed that these apparitions would say things to her or shout profanities and other times they would take on the voice of one of her children in an attempt to lure her to them. One day when Carmen was taking a shower, an unforeseen force wrapped the shower curtain around her face and tried to suffocate her. Tammy heard the Carmen screams and rushed into the bathroom to save her. Luckily, the both of them were okay. No one in the family wanted to be in the room alone, so they started going to the bathroom in pairs and tried not to be in the house. Carmen even started seeing the pinstripe figure that Philip saw. Alan and Carmen even claimed that their bed would vibrate as if it had a heartbeat and their covers would be roughly pulled off. I'm not going to go into more detail than this because it's completely disturbing and very scary, but these entities that were in the house would sexually assault both Alan and Carmen at night when they were sleeping. These dark entities would prevent them from moving and force them to just be there frozen with that pain. A presence that felt like an adult man would sit on the edge of a couple's bed when they slept and attack only one of them when the other one was sleeping. Eventually, the whole family started sleeping in the living room where they wouldn't be alone, and they did this for two years because they just didn't have the money to go anywhere else. Eventually, they decided that they needed to get some serious help. So, and Turin, famous paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, quick recap on Ed and Lorraine Warren. We have talked about them plenty of times in our previous episodes, especially our Conjuring-themed ones, so go check those ones out. But Ed 
Warren is a self-taught demonologist and Lorraine Warren is a clairvoyant slash medium. So the Warrens filed the house as a nine out of 10 case, meaning that it's deathly serious and one of the most serious cases they had ever investigated. Lorraine said that the house was infested by demons who had been in the house before the Sedekers even arrived. The Warrens went to the Catholic church and tried to get an exorcism for the house, which the church initially resisted. The Warrens encouraged Alan and Carmen to bring their story to the media in order to push the church to passing this exorcism, which came in a which came at its own cost since reporters were always at their doors after this and their own children even started getting bullied as people believed that they were making all of this up. An exorcism was eventually allowed. On September 6, 1988, three priests and three deacons exorcised the house. During the climax of the ritual, a great force came upon the house and everyone in the room started to pray. The force broke out when they said amen and suddenly everything stopped and a wave of calm came over the house. Everyone, the Warrens, the Sedekers, and the Preeps believed that the house was totally safe now and all the demons were expelled. However, in a strange turn of events, the Sedekers moved to Tennessee six days after the exorcism to get away from the press and all the bad memories. Now, with everything that's happened to these people, I think it's pretty safe to say that there was probably some demonic entity that was in that house that was very malicious and just really horrible and it's terrible what these people went through. But... We all know that Arvin is going to have his share <laughs> of things to say. But before we get to his part, here's a quick message from our sponsors. All right, everyone, it's time for your favorite part of the episode, the ultimate disproving of everything Yeshvi said. Um, actually, before I start off, I just want to say I think Phillips is cra- uh, just crazy. Um I think he has his own problems, separate from the rest of the family, given everything he did. I actually don't think that was demonically related at all. I think he's just insane. Uh, But to start off with the paranormal things, the Warrens, from our experience with them in our previous seasons, from The Conjuring 1 and 2 to Amityville, we know the Warrens simply chase after the money and the fame for a profit. Already, that makes the story slightly suspicious, but they've covered a lot of cases. Maybe this is one that was slightly correct let's see let's see the facts there were reports <laughs> of some very strange could be paranormal things happening but who made all of these reports of what's happening who saw everything that was happening this isn't like um the conjuring 2 where oh, you know everyone from the town the policemen everyone saw paranormal things happening no everything that happened was reported by either the two warrens or the family themselves so the very same. This is the very same family that received all the profits and fames from the scenario. The ones who called the Warrens in the first place got their attention, met with them, and I know this is Yeshvi's least favorite theory of mine. And it's so obvious in this scenario that the family made up what was happening along with the Warrens. It's basically, in my opinion, a direct copy of what happened in Amityville. And if you haven't watched that episode, you should go do that now to understand what I'm talking about. And this theory I'm making is backed up quite heavily by two sources, both of which use primary evidence from people involved in the case. The first of which comes from LiveSciences.com's Benjamin Radford. Quote, the Snedekers have told their story many times, including on national talk shows and in a Discovery Channel TV show. The film's poster states in capital letters at the top that the movie is, quote, based on true events, end quote. Yet others aren't so sure. Investigator Joe Nickel reports in the May-June issue of Skeptical Inquirer magazine that the Snedekers' landlady found the whole story ridiculous. She noted that nobody before or since had experienced anything unusual in the house which is uncommon when it comes to demons, and that the Snedeker family stayed in the house for more than two years before finally deciding to leave. She said, quote, 
Apparently being assaulted by Satan's minions for months at a time wasn't good enough reason to break the lease, end quote. And I know yesterday talked a lot about how they didn't have the money to move out, but actually a report that was found in that they were making like a lot of buys and expenses to furniture in the house. Like they were planning on staying there for a long time, even though, you know, if they were experiencing all these paranormal things, you'd think the natural reaction is to save up so you can move out as soon as you can. But they really stayed for a long time and really made it a place to call home for a while. Um, the cynical story first came to light in a, by in horror novelist Ray Garten's 1992 book, In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting. In an interview in Horrorbound magazine, Garten himself discussed how the true story behind the haunting in Connecticut came about. Garten was hired by Ed and Lorraine Warren to work with the Snedekers and write the true story of their house from hell. He interviewed all of the family members about their experiences and soon realized that there was a problem, saying, quote, I found out the accounts of the individual Snedekers didn't quite mesh. They couldn't keep their story straight. I went to Ed with this problem. Oh, they're crazy, he said. You've got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it look scary, end quote. Garden, who had accepted the job expecting to have a real true story to base the book on, did as he was told, saying, quote, I used what I could, made up the rest, and tried to make it as scary as I could. Don't forget, this is a, quote, nonfiction book that the entire film and the entire true story is based off of. Though the Snedekers stand by their story, it seems like there's little or no proof that anything supernatural occurred at the house. Whether or not the Snedekers actually believe their story, they stood to make money from the book deal. They are aware that the Lutz family of a medieval New York profited handsomely from selling the rights to their true story of a haunted house. The medieval horror has long since been revealed as fiction by investigator Rick Asuna and others, like I talked about in the episode. Interestingly, the Warrens were also involved in the medieval case. Interesting indeed. Fiction passed off as a memoir or true story is certainly nothing new. From William Peter Bliley's book and film The Exorcist to James Frey's debunked bestseller A Million Little Pieces. Filmmakers have a long since long history of touting movies based on true stories, but in fact they have little or no connection to real events. As for the haunting in Connecticut garden notes, I suspect the movie will be begin with the words based on a true story. But be warned, just about anything that move that begins with any variation of the phrase is trying a little too hard to convince you of something that probably isn't true. Now the second article by Scott Bielow, if sorry if I pronounced that wrong, on NBC's Connecticut website gives a story of the current owner of the house who finds similar results to what the current owners of the Conjuring One house explained. Quote, we've lived in the house for 10 years. Our house is wonderful, Trotta Smith, the current owner, told the Record Journal. This is all Hollywood foolishness. These stories are all lucrative. Police spokesman Sergeant Lowell De Palma told the newspaper that he talked with Trotta Smith and neighbors who are concerned about people coming onto their property, looking for something that isn't there. Quote, I know it may disappoint a lot of people, but it is not ghosts. It's not demons or E.T. or whatever. They're not being haunted by any ghosts. They're living their lives like anyone else. End quote, De Palma said. Quote, the reason why we were called is because of problems outside of the house. I was sad to hear that people are trying to get out of their cars and start trespassing, end quote. So this is something that we saw a lot in the Conjuring 1 movie, where the current owners, their main problem isn't any ghosts or paranormal, but it's people trying to take advantage and, you know, look in this historical house because they, they think it's this huge thing that they want to see, but that's disturbing those who currently own the property. So... Now we know that there weren't any paranormal things going on, evident from what the current owner and the author who actually wrote the book everything was based on have been saying. And of course, given the Warrens' reputation, fame and money have to be involved. Come on. In fact, it was so involved that the Snedekers thought that the Warrens were trying to get money off of them in the way that the Warrens handled the press, instead wanting the attention for themselves to tell their own story. They'd often put on performance-like interviews for the press, creating controversy around this case, because their responses seemed rehearsed, and they rarely spoke with heavy emotion in their voices. 
And with some of the stories not lining up with each other, like the children telling different stories like the author himself was talking about, it makes the story even less likely to be real. All right. We are going back to our to our roots, you know, back to the original reason we ever even started this podcast, mm-hmm. which was just to argue about the existence of demons, not that to get that mis- Oh, it's void. Not to get that mistaken. We have absolutely loved covering everything else. But <laughs> to those of you who do not know, our first episode, our first full episode we ever released was The Conjuring Part 1. It covers it covers the true story behind the first Conjuring movie. It is honestly, I think, one of our most listened to episodes, which is hilarious mm-hmm. to me because we didn't have a clue what we were doing nope, in that episode. My part is so bad there. We didn't have, like, um, a, a solid structure, um, but it's just great. And I think it was, it was great. We talked a lot about demons, and we introduced, I think it was a great first episode to have because it introduced right off the bat two of our most controversial people mm-hmm. which is of course miss mr and mrs ed and lorraine warren i gotta say though look i'm an honest woman you know down to my core <laughs> and this is not the episode i think where i can defend the warrens nope you know i i do appreciate them i appreciate what they've done i feel like as much as it is in this day and age, back in their day and age, it probably wasn't a good thing when people were like, oh, what do you do for a living? And they're like, we investigate the paranormal. You know, I don't think that growing up gave them good rep. Um, but I got to say, when I found out that they willingly told the Snedeker family to talk to the press, I was like, oh, that's a bad move. Yeah. This is not going to end well. Um but, you know, something I wanted to make sure we talked about was the neighbors. There are very conflicting opinions about this Connecticut house from the neighbors. Also, side, sorry, side note, first of all, why are there so many haunted houses in the New England area? Yeah, no, that's a big thing. I guess right? it's like old ground, kind of, you know, Boston being like Plymouth Rock and all that. But, like, Virginia has Jamestown. Is, like, Jamestown super... Like, I just feel like, look, because Amityville is Long Island. The, uh... I think they were the parents. The parent family for Conjuring 1 was Rhode Island. These people are Connecticut. Like, what what was the big deal? Well, I guess also because, like, the Warrens were regional to New England. So they investigated the most there, but still, I feel Easiest like places for them to go get some money. I mean, what? Wow, wow! You really jumped on that opportunity. I really here. Don't like I the was words. here. I was speculating whether New England itself was cursed, and that's why you know the Patriots are what they are in order <laughs> to take off all the heat from Tom Brady. You know, but still. Anyways, aside from that. Um, back to the point, there's very conflicting views with the neighbors because some of the neighbors were like, dude, literally that house was not haunted. I would see them laughing outside all the time. Like they definitely made it up. And then some of the other neighbors were like, oh yeah, we were also definitely haunted because I know one of the neighbors has reported that she was out. She's like a right, like right next door neighbor. And she was out gardening and like, she felt like something like pinch her repeatedly which is 
an odd thing to feel in a garden. Um, and she said that it didn't feel like a bee sting. It just felt like a pinch. And it, and like there were, I don't think there were any like bruises or red marks left on her body, which was very strange. Um, I'm not sure about that one. We'll have to double check on that. But I mean, uh, camera crews, everyone pulling up to your house. But this was before. I, see, I don't know the timeline, but I'm assuming this was before. Because the the craziest part in all of this is that they lived there for two years. Yeah, right? that was the big thing. But that's but I'm assuming then this whole neighbor situation probably happened in these two years. Probably, but I have a feeling that it was towards the end when they had actual like because who who got the statement from her? It's not like the police are going to go take her statement on is it haunted or not. It's going to be either the Warrens. Well, wouldn't they reporting on it? Wouldn't they take her statement because they want to see. Like, it, how is there, have there been any, any, like, noise disturbances, you know? But you see, have that's you... the thing with this one. We've seen so far, like, I think our biggest one with the police was the, um, what is the Einfield Poltergeist, Conjuring 2. Uh, that was a big one where the police got reports from everyone, and that was hugely publicized because the police were actually reporting paranormal things happening. But... For here, throughout all of the research I've done so far, and from what I'm getting from what you're saying, there's no big police people saying, you know, we investigated a house, there's a lot of suspicious things going on, or the neighbors are saying anything suspicious, because I feel like that would be really publicized if these policemen who are supposed to, who honestly come in trying to disprove the paranormal, are seeing anything paranormal. Right. That's a valid point. That's a valid point. I'll give you that. Thank you. <laughs> I I wanna I wanna bring up though your your very of course brilliant take on the apparitions that were seen in the house. I noticed that you didn't have anything for that, and I was wondering if there was something in that brain of yours about well, I specifically. Mean, sorry, specifically our pinstripe suit man. Of course, of course. Uh, who saw these apparitions yesterday, pray tell? Well, everybody saw them because Philip saw them, and then Carmen saw them, and I don't think the rest of the family saw the pinstripe suit, but the rest of the family did see apparitions. But I think right. specifically so, for pinstripe was Philip and Carmen. The people seeing these apparitions are the family, and the people lying in this case are the family. Well, we so, don't necessarily know if the family is lying. Sorry, I feel sorry. like you the people seeking money and fame in this scenario wow, are the okay. family. Well no, because if we're playing the game that the Warrens are the one that are seeking money and fame, I'm more inclined to think that the Warrens were lying and they were taking advantage of this family who had just gone through something horrible. Oh no, it was definitely cooperation. They came in, they told them, Hey, we're gonna pretend like this is a big thing that's happening right now. So obviously the family's already started off. They probably something weird was going on. I think Philip had probably a mental disorder more than just um, the disease that he came down with, which caused all of his action in the beginning. And it probably spread a lot, you know, like mass paranoia type things of people in the house. Philip talking about seeing all these things. If he was actually schizophrenic, people in the house may be starting to see them too. If they're, if they're interested in these types of things or if they're like fearful of it, because, you know, if you're fearing something, you're more likely to think it's happening. So they started to see these, and at some point they decide, you know what, I'm going to blow this beyond what's actually happening to us. Let's take it a step further, because obviously while they're talking about it, they can see people are interested. While 
you know, while they, they're actually uh, influenced by Philip if he had schizophrenia or whatever their case was in the beginning, the neighbors are getting interested. Maybe a local press was getting interested in them. That's the money they need if they really were tight on money to get out of the house if that's what they were looking for. So they blow up their story. These two huge Ghostbusters, well, not really Ghostbusters, but Ed and Lorraine Warren come down and they, and they see these people and they're like, you know what? We've done this with all of our old cases. We can blow you up just like we've done with them. All you need to do is stay in this house for a bit longer. We can put on this mock exorcism, pretend everything's all good, do a couple interviews, maybe get a movie done. I'm going to hire this author to write a book. And we're all set here. We can get all the money. So the family agrees to this because, of course, who doesn't want money? And they decide, you know what? I'm going to take all these interviews. Why are we letting the Warrens come in and steal our case? We're the ones who came up with this. This is our house, our thing. So that's what caused the conflict between the Warrens and the family. It wasn't because just the Warrens were manipulating them or they were trying to lie. I think it's because both parties were trying to seek more money and more fame. Dang. Okay, here's my point, though. Because basically, <laughs> here's my thing. You you only have said this in a previous episode. Don't remember which one, but you said it in one of them. You always have claimed that if you go in looking for the paranormal, you're going to find the paranormal. That's your whole motto, whatever, right? These mm-hmm. these boys, Philip and Bradley, they didn't go in looking for the paranormal because there is a story, a very distinct story that I did forget to include in our research. And I also just listened to it in another podcast you know this morning so that's that is what it is anyways there is a story about how right because this basement used to be a a mortuary and so there were all these like gurneys and all that gross stuff right so the story where it's like um bradley is the oldest so philip is the second oldest and philip is like goofing around and he is like on um a, a gurney and he's got like a sheet over him and he doesn't exactly know what's happening because he doesn't know what a mortuary is. And Bradley is like kind of just like spinning him around on this desk. And he gets and he's like, and it's just kind of a crazy experience for Philip. And he sees really crazy stuff. But the, I'm not focusing on the scene part. I'm focusing on the part where it's like these boys didn't go into this house thinking, oh, wow, I'm about to go and see these pinstripe suits. I'm about to go and see these three figures wearing trench coats. They didn't go in looking for this. And yet, it's not just Philip who saw them. Bradley saw them too. These two boys but like both saw these figures and, and they both witnessed the flying of that uh, toy robot. And so it's kind of, and then, and then Carmen sees it too, right? So now we got three people who have seen this pinstripe suit thing. Granted, I guess you, you could make the case that maybe Carmen was looking for it because literally her son yelled at her and now they're going to come after you, which is, you know, an alarming thing to hear. But aside that, we'll focus on Philip and Bradley. They've both seen these things when they weren't looking for it. Same thing with the whole light bulb situation. Light bulbs were removed and they both still saw the lights flicker and and they faded you know okay um here's what here's my take on it okay you you move into this house you go to the basement obviously neither of these guys knew what a funeral home is so they're just like screwing around they're doing whatever they want um at some point they did find out that it was a funeral home i think that was before they actually saw the pinstripe suit right i have no idea the timeline for this actually to be totally honest with you I'm pretty sure it was before they saw this suit, but they were doing all of the, like, screwing around in the basement. I know I heard about that, too, of them just, like, having fun. Because that's not something you typically see here of someone in a, in a funeral home. But, you know, they're just in this house. They're screwing around. But the second you hear that it could possibly, like, paranormal. Like, I live in a house that there is completely nothing paranormal to do with. 
but every time the ceiling creaks, my first thoughts are obviously both creaky floorboards and what if there's a person walking around up there? Now that fades in seconds, but that's still a thought that goes into your mind. I don't know a single person who just, you don't think of anything paranormal. Like, do you not just see like a shadow move and think, what if there's a dude in my room? Like, come on. I feel like that's a base thought that everyone has. And I'll imagine that thought, except you live in a place that very well could be haunted with ghosts. You're well, going to see things. I think people think that it's a dude in their room. Like, look, if if I'm imagining these boys waking up in the middle of the night and they're seeing the shadowy figure kind of looking at them, my if that happened to me, my first thought isn't going to be like, oh, God, that's a ghost. It's going to be like, who just broke into my house? Like, I'm not immediately jumping to with some mystical afterworld figure, right? I'm thinking it's like a real like tangible human being and so like if i'm those boys that's the first thing that i'm gonna think is what's happening i'm not gonna jump to the paranormal either but then what happens is this happens repeatedly right and at one point they are weird shadowy type things and people like don't just morph into shadows so that starts to start raising some questions and then maybe they then that's when they start coming to the conclusion that it's like something paranormal i don't know i think it's just like it's not enough to I don't think there's enough to say that they were looking for the paranormal when it comes into this okay that's fair they probably weren't didn't start looking to the paranormal that's why I think that something was up with Philip now the question of Bradley seeing it I honestly think that's more of just like hey you know little bro here who no one knows is a schizophrenic if he actually was schizophrenic is seeing these things and you know this is a scary place to be in Maybe I saw this little shadow flicker. What if it is the thing he was talking about? Like, Bradley probably didn't see the same level of things that Philip saw in the beginning. But I'm sure to an extent, if your brother and the person you're down, you know, hanging around with is seeing things, you're going to be like, whoa, wait, maybe do I see them too? That's when we don't, looking. We don't necessarily know that because all that we know is that Bradley saw the three figures in the trench coats. He saw the black figure throw the toy robot. Um, and he saw the whole light bulb situation, I think. And, like, obviously, the shadows and the cold temperature and the smell was with the rest of the family, but, like, specifically to Bradley and Philip situations, right? Like, that's all that he saw. So I think what I'm hearing is we're coming to the same conclusion where either, one, we need to talk to the Seneca family, or <laughs> we just live with these unanswered questions forever. See, but that's the thing. With them not lining up, because where do we know all of these things that Bradley saw came from? We know from the book, from what Gardner has been saying, and from what their interviews were way after they had already left the house. We don't have anything from when they were in the house in the early stages. We don't have any interviews from there. We don't know what happened until way after. Now, obviously, if, if what we're getting is from what Gardner's book says, we know a lot of that was made up. For all we know, maybe he made up the first two scenarios to make it look scarier, to make it look more real because someone other than just the schizophrenic brother was seeing it that's that that could be what happened if it's off of interviews that could be way after they've decided they want to get the money and fame to make up stories we can't trust anything because we know the facts have been tampered with so because of that we can't trust if this story is paranormal or not instead all we know is a lot of the facts have been skewed a lot of the facts have been tampered with and there is no true basis to go off that proves this is paranormal which is why it is my belief that this is not a paranormal story at all Okay, you're making a valid point, but here's my whole, like, situation. Even if, however much he did make up, at the end of the day, like you said, there's, 
we have no idea what's the separation between what was real and what wasn't. The bottom line is something had to have been happening in this house for them to initially even think that it was real. I'm not saying it's demonic infestation. You know, something we learned this season that's going to actually come up much later. You'll get to that when you guys get to that, when we release it, is how one of the things we've credited so much is to demons. You know, demons aren't even actually, I think, like more than 90% of hauntings. I think they're less than 1% of hauntings. They're actually done by demons. So I'm not saying that there was something demonic and evil and bad in their house. You know, maybe it was just a classic, confused, angry ghost, you know, that happens to the best of us. The, the, po- the point I'm making is that there must have been something in that house that made them initially be like, wow, this is getting really weird. Because it's one thing to say that Philip, who has already gone through one of the most exhausting processes of his life of, you know, getting cancer and going through chemotherapy, and then also being schizophrenic and having done horrible things to his family members, right, to have seen all these things, you could do a whole boy who cried wolf situation right and just call him crazy but this whole thing transcends to the whole family and i believe that i believe the whole family experienced that and then at that point you know once again like maybe it wasn't as full-fledged as we have read that it is but something must have been happening for it to have gotten this big okay that's fair something could have happened i i definitely agree that we can that it good chance it's not as something as big as the demon as big as it was made out to be could it have been a small ghost or something no because ghosts aren't real but there is evidence that that could have happened sure yeah given your um belief in ghosts (laughs) given my belief in ghosts yes that was a beautiful way to word it arvin i gotta i i am inclined i am a gullible human being that's true look i'm wow okay what i'm agreeing you re- yeah, yeah, I didn't with, need you I'm to. agreeing with your statement. You made a valid statement, so I'm providing my support. I didn't need you to make this this point. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna actually continue before you really just cut me off right there. Anyways, I'm a global human being when it comes to people telling me their whole life stories, because there's nothing I think that's more fascinating than somebody's entire life story. And so I am, I will always be more inclined to believe people as opposed to Arvin, who has no faith in humanity. So (laughs) I will, I am going to rest my case with the facts that, that I, something must've been happening with the Senegers, not necessarily demonic possession, but something paranormal would definitely. New England is definitely a very haunted area that somebody should get to the bottom of because why? Someone who's happening? maybe not the Warrens. The Warrens are dead. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I thought wait, <laughs> I thought only one of them. I thought only one of them was dead. No, they're both Ed, dead. I thought no, no, no. Lorraine died in like 2018. Oh, or like 19 something like that. Lorraine Warren died in 2019. Yeah. R.I.P. to the Warrens. R.I.P. to the Warrens. You served us well. Anyways, uh, well, I mean, there is, like, Nesper is still an organization. If you guys do not know what Nesper is, Nesper is the New England Society for Psychic Research. It was founded by, guess who? Guess Arvin. I'm not guessing. Guess who founded Nesper? The Warrens. It was founded by the Warrens. It was founded by Ed and Lorraine Warren in 1952. It is New England's Paranormal Research Headquarters, which is, I think, something very fun. I would love to volunteer with them one day to go on a little paranormal investigation, please. They've been, like, featured in, like, the New York Times and CNN and People Magazine, like, all of the stuff. 
they do host um and so it i guess you know like that's a that's a paranormal in uh organization because they will actually investigate your house if you think something paranormal is happening um that is native to the new england region which once again raises the question is it because new england is haunted or because like it's just where the originals do anyways there's Nesper, right? So that's actually so maybe, maybe you got to call up Nesper to figure out this whole New England situation. And if they approach you telling you to blow up your story for money, call us. Oh my God, call God. us. Jesus call me. Anyways, I'm changing the subject before we before we end this episode. I gotta I gotta figure we gotta answer the question of the season. So, do we think that the Snedekers open themselves up to? this supernatural entity and it could have been avoided or do we think it was just you know all overwhelming paranoia i'm gonna go first in order to prevent you from talking here's my thing actually i think (laughs) they definitely opened themselves up if you guys did not listen to the episode we had with elizabeth brundage which is our very first episode of this season what are you doing go and listen to it but something that elizabeth talked about with us is kind of the powers of the human mind and how we know we're going to be in a bad situation and we choose to go into it anyway and I think that is a brilliant it's brilliantly shown here as the Snedekers knew it was going to be bad going into it right the moment a house in Connecticut which I don't know if you guys even realize how expensive as an area Connecticut is it's where all of New York's richest people live especially Hartford County um for a house in Connecticut in the in like the late 80s to early 90s be that cheap is right away suspicious to have the basement closed off is very suspicious funeral homes have a very distinct layout you know, to completely ignore that is just really wanting to hope for the best. And I think in her heart of hearts, in her deepest gut, Carmen must have known that this wasn't the place that she should keep her family. And she went along with it anyway. So I think it was definitely an avoidable case of supernatural phenomena. And um, it's deeply unfortunate that they had to go through with it. And now I guess Arvin can talk. (laughs) Actually, I'd almost always agree that the person that the family opens themselves up to the paranormal. Um, in most scenarios, I think of episodes we've done, especially things this season with, you know, like Candyman and uh, our episodes that are to come. I think I'm almost always on the side that they open themselves up to the paranormal by expecting it or by blatantly trying to ignore it. But in this scenario, I actually don't think they open themselves up to the paranormal. I actually agree. I'm flipping sides here <gasps> that they... That they came in not expecting a paranormal. They didn't look for the paranormal in any way, shape, or form. Paranoia simply found them. And in a way, it's kind of like Emily and Annalise, one of our, actually, our second episode that we ever made. You guys should go listen to it. The throwback episodes. Where Emily, or actually Annalise, the original story, she never opened herself up to the paranormal, but a lot, I think mental illness a lot invites paranoia, which then invites the quote-unquote paranormal. They're, they're all always connected. Emily or Annalise experienced all of these things because of some of the mental illnesses I hypothesized her to have and some of the things she was diagnosed with. So I think you... it's a similar scenario here where, you know, due to, due to um, shit, I forgot his name. Who's schizophrenia? Philip. Philip. <laughs> you know, I think it's a similar scenario here where due to Philip's schizophrenia, the whole family was kind of 
put on edge with some of the things he was saying he was seeing, and that invited them to be seeing some of these things themselves. So you don't think they initially were were hoping for the paranormal? No, but I think it sought them out. Right. Kind of sounds like you believe in the paranormal. No, but paranormal, believe it. <laughs> the paranormal in the form of <laughs> mental illness. We'll leave it at there. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It's really quite nice to get back to our roots of me destroying Arvind because the supernatural is definitely real. Uh, no. I think I totally proved you wrong because people only ever do stuff for money and fame and the paranormal is not real. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> don't forget to follow us at Behind the Story on Instagram and Twitter with a period between the I and N for Instagram and an underscore between the I and N for Twitter. And leave us a message on our anchor.fm website with anything you would like us to know. And also, please donate to your local abortion fund. Once again, you can find the link in our bio. Any amount, no matter how small it is, makes a difference. We hope you have a great week. And remember, there's always more to uncover behind the story. See you next time. Thank you.